The Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hello, my name is Emily and I work for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I'm the host of these episodes where we hear directly from family-scale farmers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we're highlighting the innovative ways farmers are supporting on-farm fertility and building healthy soil. For this episode, we're taking a look at farms that are successfully integrating livestock into their crops, a way to build on-farm diversity that can offer a range of benefits to the farm as an agro-ecosystem. We'll talk to Ken Muller, who owns and operates Pasture 42 in the Cape Valley, about how they've incorporated sheep and poultry into their orchard management. But first, we're headed to Dixon, California, in the fertile Sacramento Valley, to hear from Lorraine Walker of Eatwell Farm. Eatwell Farm started back in the early to mid-90s by my late husband, Nigel Walker, and his wife at the time, Frances. We're right between Vacaville and Davis in an area known as the Dixon Ridge, which has some of the most fertile soil in the whole world. Nigel grew up in England, where he studied agriculture. His dream was to create a farm and farm shop, but that proved more difficult in the U.S. than it is in England. So, he shifted gears, centering the farm on a solid CSA instead. Eatwell Farm was one of the founding farms to sell at San Francisco's renowned Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market. And through that market, he was able to meet a lot of really great customers who became quite loyal, and that's how he was able to get the CSA going. Nigel's Farmer's Market stand was well known for its delicious heirloom tomatoes and richly fragrant lavender varieties. He became well-known in the organic farming movement in Northern California as an innovator and a proponent of sustainable agriculture practices. Sadly, he passed away in 2017. But Lorraine has strived to carry Nigel's vision forward at Eatwell, and she's even pushed it further. At this point, Eatwell is now 105 acres. We have around 1,100 CSA subscriptions, doing close to 700 boxes a week. We grow over 150 crops in a year. We also have a small orchard. We have about five, six acres of orchard. Organic vegetables and lavender may be the stars at Eatwell Farm, but the secret to the farm's success, Lorraine says, is the chickens. They play a really important role on our farm. Thanks to the manure and boost to the soil biology provided by the chickens, Eatwell operates with no outside inputs in terms of their fertility. Ensuring that the chickens provide nutrients to the whole farm is a more complex process than simply adding fertilizer. The chickens are moved around. Well, if I do it right, we're set up with about six to seven acre plots and we'll sow pasture seed and run the chickens out there for about a year and then move them onto their next six to seven acre plot. And then after the appropriate amount of time, we'll start planting crops and using that land. So we're able to rotate the chickens throughout the farm. And they eat down the weeds and they eat the bugs and they keep the fertility happening. 
Then of course we get the eggs, which is also a big benefit. Eggs have become a really big part of our CSA. In order to keep the CSA boxes full, Eatwell is a year-round farm, something made possible by the Northern California location and climate. Chickens aren't the only fowl helping to keep the farm fertilized. They also have geese. Lorraine says that keeping their orchards fertilized can be a challenge. So we realize that we're definitely lacking fertility in under our trees. Um, and the geese actually aren't the greatest uh, fertility providers for the trees, but chickens do a better job. However, if we run the geese out there along with the chickens, the geese will eat the taller grasses. And so with the geese eating the taller grasses, that means I don't need to pay for man hours or use fossil fuels to get out there and either mow with the tractor or really more what happens is we go out and we weed whack. And that requires a lot of hours of time. So by bringing a few geese back, we should be able to keep them with the chickens and keep the grasses cut short. Transitioning the farm to chicken manure-based fertility wasn't simple. One issue she encountered early on was that the pasture Nigel had sowed was primarily tall grasses well-suited for sheep. The idea was that sheep would eat the tall grasses low enough for the chickens to come in. But they never actually ended up bringing sheep onto the farm. And what happened was that pasture mix grew really, really, really tall, like over six feet tall. So Lorraine stopped sowing pasture altogether for two years and let the chickens wage war against the tall grasses. It worked. But then she noticed a new problem. Our eggs suffered. The, the quality of egg wasn't as good. You didn't have those really nice bright yolks and the flavor wasn't quite as intense as it is when you have nice pasture. So this last year, I went out and, and got a more appropriate pasture mix for poultry. So very low growing. And once we got that well established, you could see a, a tremendous improvement in the eggs pretty quickly within probably two weeks. It's been a process of trial and error, and it hasn't been easy. But Lorraine says that now that she's gotten the kinks out, it was well worth it. I mean, it's obvious that having animals on the farm can be hugely beneficial. It also can require a lot of work. I think it took a couple of years of, of making mistakes and really kind of sorting everything out to understand um, exactly how beneficial it could be. The advantage of having chickens is that it does mean that we aren't applying anything to the farm. So that means we don't have the labor, the man hours going into doing that work, nor do we have the expense of that. Of course, the chickens themselves require people working. And we have two people every day working on the chickens. But for that labor, we sell the eggs. So that cost is kind of covered. and. So far, the fertility on the farm has been pretty incredible. I mean, most farmers who come out to see what we're doing are always really surprised by how well things grow without us adding anything to the soil. The chicken learning curve included troubleshooting their accommodations. Our chicken houses are quite large. We actually have old mobile homes actual 
human mobile homes where the, the house was taken off of the frame and then we build chicken houses on top of them. So our, our chicken houses are big enough to hold about 900 birds. Originally, we weren't putting that many birds into the houses, but what we found was that the chickens would leave a house and migrate into another house. So for instance, if we had about 400 birds in a house, a lot of them would move into another house and we would end up with about 800 birds in a house. It was kind of funny. The girls make up their own minds. <laughs> and so we were able to bump up the amount of chickens we had in a house. The tricky thing is, is trying to figure out where you want them for close to a year and getting the timing right so that the chickens can move in there before rainy season hits, if we're lucky enough to have a rainy season. I'll bring a flock in in May or, or April. One of the things that really changed for us in terms of understanding the value that the chickens have in terms of growing vegetables was when we started adding whey to their food. And um, that kind of happened because I was doing a lot of research on lacto-fermentation. So then I started reading about lactobacillus in the soil and healthy bacteria in the soil. And this is a long time ago. This is back in 2009. And I suggested to Nigel that, you know, it would be really interesting if we could access some whey and add that to the chicken feed. Whey as a byproduct of yogurt production can be a rich source of beneficial bacteria and protein. And the hens love it too. Once we started adding uh, whey to the chicken feed, after about a year, we saw a huge difference in our crops. And that's when we realized, um, I would say probably it was a year, maybe two years after that, that we stopped uh, buying compost for the, for the farm. Because we just, the vegetables were growing really, really well. And I think having all the beneficial bacteria in the feed for the chickens, then what was going in was coming out. And eventually we were able to really improve the fertility in our soil because we were really improving the, the bacteria life in the soil. And it seemed to make a really big difference. And it's not just the crops and soil that seem to benefit from the probiotic bacteria. Lorraine believes the whey helps the chickens thrive. I think because our chickens have a high probiotic diet, they tend to stay healthier. And also because they're not cooped up in houses, uh, they tend to stay healthier. Almost every year, a group of veterinary students from UC Davis pays a visit to Eatwell Farm to study different kinds of poultry operations. The way we do things is really different. And it's interesting because they'll always ask, well, how do you deal with, you know, this disease and how do you deal with that disease? And do you inoculate and do you do this? And it's like, actually, we we almost never have problems, knock on wood. Um, the vet professors that come out, they're always really astounded. It's like, we just don't really have issues. Thank goodness. Probably shouldn't say that too loud. <laughs> 
Lorraine believes that modern agriculture practices aimed at production volume and speed have come at the expense of the kind of healthy, nutrient-dense food grown at Eatwell. And we have increased the risk of issues. There are a lot of problems with chickens when you've got 100,000 chickens living in a house. Well, that completely makes sense. You know, they, they're not supposed to live in a house. They're supposed to live outside. We perhaps have made things in some ways simpler with, with modern technology, but I think we have also created a lot of problems for ourselves. Lorraine Walker of Eatwell Farms. Now let's head north to Gwinda, California in the Cape Valley to a small farm that's taking a somewhat different approach to integrated crop livestock management by running sheep and poultry through their orchards. Hi, my name is Ken Muller. I'm from Pasture 42. We've been here for about eight years. Uh, before that, we had a farm in Oregon where we did somewhat similar things for about five years. And on our current farm, Pasture 42, we have uh, chickens for meat and eggs. We have ducks, sheep, pigs, cattle, and occasionally turkeys and quail as well. Specifically, they have about 130 sheep, between 1,500 and 2,500 laying hens, depending on the time of year and a few hundred ducks, turkeys, and quail. They also raise around 500 broilers per year. And um, we grow almonds and olives and oranges and a few various other fruit trees as well, pomegranates, apricots, a few other things. But the unique thing about Ken's approach is that the trees and animals share the same space. Specifically, they're integrating their sheep, chickens, ducks, turkeys, and quail in their orchards. And we'd kind of figured, well, why not try to get two uses out of the land at once, growing the trees in an orchard and raising livestock and put them together? Because we originally were raising livestock in open pasture um, and growing orchards separately. And it makes sense just to combine the two, that the livestock get the benefit of the shade and a little bit of protection from the rain. And the trees get the benefit of the manure from livestock. We space our trees a little bit wider than average so that we have room to run either a, a chicken house or, or turkey house or something down through the middle of the orchard. Spacing trees more widely has an obvious downside, which would be a potential decrease in yields per acre. But Ken explains that by integrating trees and livestock on the same land, the math actually ends up in their favor. So even if, say, worst case scenario, we only get two-thirds of the protection we would get um, from a normal orchard, and we couldn't run quite as many livestock as we could in a wide open pasture, and we were only able to get two thirds of the livestock production. Even in that scenario, together, we're at four thirds, so we're, we're producing one third more goods on the given amount of land. Um, and it, it seems like that is the case, so far at least. Another benefit of combining their livestock and orchards? Maximizing their use of irrigation water. Water is so precious around here that um, it almost doesn't make sense a lot of times to just water a wide-open pasture and only get pasture out of it. So we're thinking, how could we get more out of it? When it comes to selecting the best type of pasture to sow, 
there are a few important considerations. Although cool season grasses seem to grow just as well under the orchard canopy, Ken says... Some of the summer grasses, the ones that benefit from full sun, they don't do quite as well. But for the most part, you don't lose too much grass growth being underneath the trees. And the trees, the shade of the trees actually holds in a lot of the water too. So you have less evaporation, it seems like. Everything we have is seeded. My favorite pasture for livestock, I think, is to have a permanent crop like alfalfa and then overseed it lightly um, with cool season crops in the winter. We use uh, things like oats and wheat and barley and um, peas and beans and vetch and radishes and um, almost any cool season crop we can get to grow. And we'll overseed that over whatever is out there. And then in the summer, we'll overseed it with cowpeas and um, buckwheat and sorghum sedan, sunflowers, or any other uh, warm season grass we get to grow, millet, anything like that. We're always experimenting with different things so that we can have um, get the maximum growth we can in any time of year and um, maximize every bit of water we put out there to, to be growing something. While there are many benefits, some challenges exist too. One difficulty Ken has faced is that the livestock don't just enjoy eating grasses. They sometimes go for the trees, too. To put sheep or even lane hens through, it has to be in either um, a mature orchard with thick bark on it or young trees that are very well protected, like in cages. So, yeah, we'll run either chicken tractors through. We'll run uh, big chicken houses on wheels through in more mature trees where we'll let the chickens out in net fences. And there, generally, our philosophy is we like to stock really heavily and move them fairly quickly. Um, same with the sheep. We, we like to move them every day. So we'll, we'll um, give them a big enough area that they could eat in one day and then move them again the next day. I guess the, the limiting factor is manure buildup and how much time it's been since they've been there. So with the sheep, we'll, we don't want to run them over the same pasture within 28 days. So we'll, we'll give it at least a 28-day rest period in there. And the chickens usually I like to go even a little bit longer than that because they, especially where, exactly where the house sits, they'll build up so much manure in there that I just like to keep the chickens away from their own manure for, for their health. So usually what we'd like to do is alternate cheap chicken, cheap chickens, so just get different species out there eating. But sometimes we'll, um, we'll do chickens after chickens if we have a long recovery period or sheep after sheep if we have an adequate recovery period too. But on any one piece of land, um, we might have the chickens pass over it could probably do three or four times a year, maybe twice in the winter, twice in the summer, and probably the same with the sheep. We have 80 acres total that we can run these animals on, so it's 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 high stocking density in one area that we move, but we have plenty of room so that we don't have to come back to any areas too soon. Ken says that to manage their livestock, they rely on electric fencing. The biggest challenge is it gets ripped a lot if you know the sheep get scared and run through it or um, someone drives over and gets a caught in an ATV and just rips it in half and it, it can be expensive but if if done right it works it works pretty well um, our ground can be kind of hard out here so we've started going to all the the net fencing with drivable posts so you can pound it into the ground instead of just pushing it in that helps and then the hotter you can get, get the fence the better the animals respect it a lot more and the predators are more likely to stay away but you know done right it works great we've been using it for years and, yeah, I think it's the, the best method out there for keeping animals where you want them to be. I think the electric fence will work 
for coyotes and dogs, but something like a bobcat or a mountain lion can jump over it with ease. Raccoons find some way. I think they, they slip right underneath. They find some way to get through. So, yeah, we have a couple dogs out there as well, one full-time with the sheep and then um, one that we rotate around between chicken flocks. Ken also notes that the system they've developed at Pasture 42 can be pretty labor-intensive. Moving the animals, moving fences, um, getting water to them, um, supplying electricity. But that's just kind of built into what we do. We've always had animals on pasture, always rotated them around. Um, we've never had them, you know, just in, in one spot. It would certainly be, I guess, easier at first, but um, I think long-term be just as hard because you have more disease issues you'd have to vaccinate for, more um, your pasture wouldn't be as productive, um, that sort of thing. So I think, you know, overall, it, it, it pays off. That it, you can definitely see the next year, or even a few months later, where the chicken houses have been. You can see the grass is more lush and green and, and looks how it, how it should, rather than, you know, the grass a few feet away might be a lot more, a lot uh, skinnier and yellower and everything, um, just not look as good. So you can definitely see the benefits of that. From the tree's perspective, it's, it's hard to tell how much benefit they get from the manure. I'm sure they're getting some. We don't fertilize the trees too much except when they're young and we need more fertilizer applied directly to them. But hopefully, I mean, by having the chickens further out from the tree, you know, instead of just applying a little nutrients right to the tree, right where the dripper is, we'll be able to have their roots go out further searching for these nutrients and get healthier root systems over time too. Aside from logistics around moving the animals, a key piece also to be aware of relates to food safety regulations, which for organic production essentially means that any crops that touch the ground must have a 120-day period or longer before harvest when the animals are out of the orchard or field. For crops that stay off the ground, the period is at least 90 days. So it just requires a bit of timing. So, you know, for almonds that if we harvest them, say, August 10th, we'd take them out. I guess it'd be April 10th. We wouldn't have chickens out there um, after that. But then even after that, we still have two months of summer after that where we can um, have them out there and then all winter long as well. Ken also emphasizes that planning operations out in advance, things like irrigation scheduling, timing fertilizer application, is pretty important to keep things running smoothly. One thing that's a little harder to plan around is the animal's tendency to eat, well, all kinds of things like irrigation tubing. If we have uh, microsprinklers or something like that, the, the sheep will eat them, especially the, the spaghetti tube. They'll rip that off. But a lot of what we do, areas that we have them, we use just aluminum hand line. So we'll uh, move that out of there ahead of time. and Or even if we leave it in there with the sheep, they don't damage it. They're um, light enough. They can walk right over it and not hurt it. The system they've worked out at Pasture 42 might not be right for every farm. But for Ken, the results speak for themselves. And for those thinking of implementing this kind of management system, he has this advice. Plant a cover crop out there, and instead of just mowing it down, maybe put some chickens out there and let them take it down. Make a little uh, chicken house that you can move around and, and put some broilers in there and pull them down between your rows of trees and, and see how it seems to benefit the grass. And of course, if you've got a flock of sheep and some mature trees, you can easily put them out there as well. I know a lot of people will, will 
rotate sheep through all sorts of different orchards, especially you know bigger trees, almonds or um, walnuts. Um, seems to work pretty well. But yeah, just start with whatever you're familiar with and um, grow grass underneath your trees and, and put them out there and um, see how it goes. I, I think you'll be happy with the results. Ken says that aside from the advantages like the efficient utilization of land and inputs, quality produce and healthier crops and animals that applying these practices has resulted in, he and the others on the farm just enjoy the process more. People enjoy moving the animals, seeing them run out to a new patch of grass or moving all your chicken houses to a new beautiful lush pasture and letting them out and just seeing them go crazy. And it's kind of a rewarding feeling. It's much better than going to a, um, a flock of chickens that are, are trying to get out and they're scratching through the dirt and just want something green and, and look you know, miserable and, and frustrated. These chickens look happy and I think that the, the people working on the farm definitely pick that up and are kind of inspired by that. CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at caff.org slash thefarmersbeat. That's B-E-E-T where we include links and resources. And be sure to check out Eat Well Farm on Instagram at Eat Well Farm and Pasture42 at Pasture underscore 42. And share the episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at CAFF underscore Fam Farms to stay up to date on when new episodes are released. This episode was funded by a grant from the Organic Farming Research Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to advance organic agriculture through scientific research. For more information, please visit OFRF.org. Are you a farmer interested in being in a future podcast or have a question related to this one? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. That's the farmer's beat at caff.org. Thank you for listening and join us for the next episode from CAF, sharing farm fresh insights right from the field and giving voice to sustainable agriculture since 1978.